Hello there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and joining me on this Friday morning after trade deadline day, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Oh, we're talking deadline? I thought we were talking about the Pistons. The Detroit Pistons, who went into Sacramento on Wednesday, 2-20 and on the road, on pace for the worst season in history. Obviously, set the single season losing streak record this year. And they sweep a back-to-back in Sacramento in Portland, in which they rallied back from, I believe, 15- and 23-point deficits. Wild stuff in the NBA. And the trade deadline happened. It's amazing what waving Killian Hayes will do for your long-term outlook. Obviously, we're we're here to talk deadline stuff, and we can talk about the Pistons in the course of that conversation. They were an active participant. Um, So we'll get into talking about them and a bunch of other teams that made moves on this day. And the great news about today, Cash, is I know you have a hard out in one hour. So we have no choice but to keep this one to 60 minutes or less. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. I don't think we have to talk about every deal, but let's just talk about the teams overall, whether it was a move or a series of moves or a particular course of action that was most interesting to us. And we can kind of break it down by the teams that made moves and the teams that didn't make moves. So let's start with the teams that did make moves and the ones that I guess you found to be most interesting yesterday. I think we got to start with the Knicks. I think any discussion about this year's deadline has to start with the Knicks being the big winners of the day, the big winners of trade season, if we're being honest, and looking like a good team, a functional franchise (laughs) consistently for the first time in God knows how long. Look, Boyan Bogdanovich, I know he's older now. The guy is still literally a 20-point scorer on average, shooting nearly 52% inside the arc, 42% from deep. And that was with limited offensive talent around him in Detroit, obviously. Now, one thing I was saying yesterday, like, I know the 2012-13 Knicks won 54 games in a playoff series, and I understand the need for cautious optimism given injuries to Mitchell Robinson, who's likely done for the year, you know, could be back for the playoffs, but we're not really sure there. OG Anunoby is now out for a few weeks at least. Julius Randle is still out. Jalen Brunson has this uh, ankle injury now. Obviously, they have to get healthy, and that's far from guaranteed that they will. But I'm convinced this is now the best Knicks team since the turn of the century and New York's most realistic shot at a finals berth in a generation. Like, a team that was already better balanced after the OG trade a team that is 16 and 4 since that deal and squarely in the race for the number 2 seed just added Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks for basically just Grimes and two second rounders cuz the expirings don't really matter they weren't part of the plans and losing Grimes hurts I'm sure but like teams in the Knicks position which is pretty damn close to contention can afford to make those kind of moves and I, I know that's unfamiliar territory for Knicks fans but that's the case this team Going into last night's loss, which again, I don't think anyone really expected anything given they were missing their top four players, but this team was top seven on both ends of the court. As we had talked about before on an episode a few weeks ago, I think, their offense seemed less playoff proof though, even though it was performing as well as it was. They're a below average shooting team. 
I know neither one of us, but you especially not sold on Randall in the playoffs and understandably so. Uh, but regardless, this some of those offensive questions I think have been answered or addressed first by splitting up Randall and Barrett and now by going out and getting Bogdanovich and to a lesser extent Burks too. Like at full strength, Bogdanovich probably comes off the bench, um, but he'll play plenty with the starters, probably closes a lot of games too. His self-creation, shooting, will be a major boost for the Knicks offense. It'll open up space for Brunson and Randall to operate in. Obviously, right now, with uh, Randall and Ananobi out, once Brunson's back, Bogdanovich will serve as like a solid secondary scorer alongside Brunson. Even Burks, like if the guy's a 40% three-point shooter, he'll help juice that below-average shooting team and, and the reserve unit. I mean, I can go on and on about how good this is for the Knicks. Only $2 million of Bogdanovich's $19 million salary for next season is guaranteed. So there's little risk here in the unlikely event his game just completely falls off a cliff down the stretch, or even if the Knicks want 2024 flexibility, but also the fact that that contract is worth up to $19 million if they end up wanting to use it in salary matching or anything. And obviously, absolute worst case, it's just expiring in 2025 when everyone knows the Knicks are trying to hoard cap space for a star guard by the name of Donovan Mitchell. It's like I said to you yesterday, like they've got two all-stars. They've got three 20 point scorers. They've got an all world defender, plenty of depth balance on both sides of the ball. Like they have just about every piece in place you could ask for outside of a bonafide superstar. And as we both mentioned yesterday, somewhat argue Brunson's play has him knocking on that door. So I think the Knicks front office has done a really good job of kind of putting the finishing touches on a team that is as close to contention, I think, as you can be without being like a no-brainer contender. And they did all that without moving any of the first-round picks that they're hoarding. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... uh, They had a good day, for sure. And like you said, a great trade season on the whole, given how well that trade for not only Ananobi, but also Precious Achua has worked out for them. You know, Precious has been starting at the four in the absence of Randall and he's been playing really well. And I think now they just have a very deep and very balanced 10 man rotation. You know, I think full strength. We don't know if Mitchell Robinson is going to get back this season. All we know is that they were denied their hardship exception that they applied for, which led to some rumblings that maybe he was going to be able to make it back. So it, I mean, if he is back, then you're looking at a starting five, probably of him, Randall, Ananobi, DiVincenzo, Brunson, with the five off the bench being Hartenstein, Achua, Hart, Burks, and Bogdanovich. And I mean, you mentioned Bogdanovich could be in some of their closing lineups. I'm, I guess I'm a little skeptical of that just because of the defensive concerns there. Maybe that's less of an issue given the way that this Knicks team can insulate him. And with Burks, I mean... We talked after that Ananobi trade, which we both really liked for them. But the one thing we pointed to as a downside was like they send out quickly and they didn't really get anything back in terms of shot creation off of the bench. And we thought that was something they were really going to miss. And, you know, Burks is no Emmanuel quickly in terms of his creation chops, but he can handle the ball. He can create for himself a little bit, shoot off the dribble a little bit and just provide a little bit of that extra scoring punch and secondary creation that will be good enough, I would say. So I, yeah, I just look at that and that, that is like a killer 10 man rotation. And I don't know if they're going to get all the way healthy, but 
Hartenstein's been amazing as a starter, so I think they'll be fine if Robinson doesn't make it back and he continues to start. I don't want to get like too far ahead of ourselves here talking about this stuff, but like I said, Precious has almost exclusively been playing the four, right? They, they haven't been playing him at center. We were like openly wondering after they made the de- that deal whether we would see Tibbs ever run with OG at five, and he's not even going with Precious at the five. Like Tibbs wants size on the floor at all times, so... You know, has has Jericho Sims done enough to be part of like a rotation in in the playoffs? I don't know. Are there more defense oriented lineups going to be able to score enough? And if they do try to go offense first with Bogdanovich in like a closing group, is that going to compromise their defense too much? I we've seen Bogdanovich actually be pretty competent defensively, especially in playoff series in the past. Like we all remember him doing a like a capable job against LeBron a few years back. And then even a couple of years ago, he was probably the best Jazz defender against Luka in that first round series against Dallas. So we've seen him do it before. And I think a situation like the one he's been in in Detroit is not the best one to judge uh, a veteran player's defense. But given his age and the fact that he was like you know, never the most mobile defender to begin with, I do wonder uh, how much he can be relied on at that end of the floor and whether that ultimately caps how much he'll actually be able to contribute to this team. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, look, they Grimes seemingly was not super happy with his role there. And I think given how much of what he does, they already basically had covered with DiVincenzo and Hart. I think it's it's fine for them to move off of him and, and to get what they got back to fill the needs they needed filled. So yeah, I think they had a good day. And probably, like we were talking about this, we're like, if there was one sort of unambiguous winner of the day, it was probably them. But to me, that more spoke to the fact that these deals were all relatively marginal in terms of what they provided. And the Knicks probably did the most in terms of like, oh, actually this raised their ceiling, you know, compared to like the other teams that made moves on this day. So, yeah, yeah, I think they deserve kudos for that. But I also think some of the praise has gone a little bit over the top. like. We're still talking about two guys who are going to be coming off the bench for them. And like good bench pieces, but as We're much as I did like the pretty move. damn good, man. They're a good team. But to me, I I'm just like more in on them based on what I've seen when they've been close right. to healthy yeah. over the last few weeks than based on what they did on deadline day. Like right. No, no, but I'm saying, Ch- but you add Demon- those Sorry? You add those two things together. Yes, no, absolutely. I I think they did well and I think they're going to be their scary team. Yeah. Uh for sure. And even if Boyan's defense is just as bad as it's looked over the last couple of years. Just having a piece like that, like still one of the best shooters in the league and having a piece like that, that you can mix and match with where if you need to put a lineup together, that skews a little bit more offense. And especially like if you're playing against transitional groups, that's less of an issue. Right. And those guys are just going to help them stay afloat while they try to navigate this period with all these guys out of the lineup. So that's we've talked about before how important it is for these teams to try and stay in that top three, right? This five team group that's kind of separated itself in the East. And that is obviously contingent on Embiid making it back for the Sixers to be part of that group. But you want to avoid that four five if you can and get up to three and and not have to play one of those other top five teams in the first round. So And also avoid Boston in the second round. Yeah, but I think that's more of a like, you know, you got to cross that bridge when you yeah. get like you got to win a series first. 
but yeah, I mean, that is definitely a secondary benefit of like, not only do you avoid a very tough first round series, though, again, I don't think, you know, Miami is going to be a cakewalk as a secondary benefit. If you do make it out of the first round, then you potentially avoid seeing Boston until the conference finals. So that's going to be really important, like staying afloat during the stretch until OG gets back, until Randall gets back. Uh, stay in the hunt and within spitting distance of one of those top three seeds, which maybe won't be at that hard given that the Sixers are without Embiid. The Bucks are actually really banged up right now. They played without both Dame and Middleton last night. I, I mean, the, the Cavs are just like, I feel like the Cavs are sitting pretty. Like yeah. they've gotten basically fully healthy now. They've hit a soft patch of schedule and I feel like they have a chance in these next couple of weeks to put like some distance between yeah. themselves and those other teams and actually get close to securing one of those top three seeds. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let, let's just keep rolling with you, Cash. Who, who else made you wanted, moves you wanted, that... You wanted to stick with me? I'll, I'll stick with you, man. Okay. Well, let's jump from a team that I was obviously very convinced was a winner to a team that I think got better, but I question everything about them, and that's the Dallas Mavericks. I... Yeah liked the gaffer deal like his combination of screening rim running rebounding shot blocking on a Luka Doncic team great fit PJ Washington is an upgrade over Grant Williams fine even though Washington's defensive issues you know make that less so than you'd think on a bad defensive team that doesn't really need to get any worse on that end but nevertheless he's an upgrade but (laughs) is PJ Washington enough of an upgrade over Grant Williams to justify giving up only a top two protected pick three years out in 2027 when you already are a team that's low on assets and draft capital? I don't think so. And also, as part of the Gaffer deal, okay, they gave up a 2024 first via OKC, but in order to get that deal from OKC also on deadline to complete the Gaffer deal... They agreed to swap rights with the Thunder in 2028. So if you're following along, they essentially gave up control of their own picks in 2027 and 2028 to turn Grant Williams, uh, Rashawn Holmes, and Seth Curry into Daniel Gafford and PJ Washington. Again, did they get a little better? Yes, but... Are those upgrades enough to justify that cost? I don't think it's even close. And like I've been saying for years now, including while the Mavs were making a run to the West Final a couple of years now, that I don't think the Mavs have a goddamn idea what they're doing and that they're going to waste all the advantages that come with having a player as transcendent as Luka Doncic. And I'm convinced that's still going to be the case. Like over the next seven drafts, The Mavs only control their firsts in 2025 and 2026. So once this draft passes, they can trade their 2025 and 2031 and then say swap in 26. And they better hope to God that between that, maybe one of the young bigs they drafted, Josh Green, whatever, that they can do something. Because all the asset capital they've burned over the years for Porzingis, Kyrie, Grant Williams, then turning Grant Williams into Washington and Grafford, like all while losing Brunson after botching the chance to sign him for below market. Like it's a really insane kind of progression of moves that I don't think put them in the position they thought it would put them in given everything they've given up. Now they had a good draft. I'll give them that in June. Obviously the Kyrie 
you know, gamble was worth it. That was a worthwhile swing for the fences. I think for the most part this season, it's paid off when healthy. But like, other than that, it's been a mostly garbage sequence of events and like series of transactions to honestly just kind of tread water and never really give them the boost that you would expect comes with like this kind of asset sacrifice. And so maybe like, I guess some people could counter and say, well, if your argument is that like they haven't done enough or they're wasting Luca, you can't also knock them for kind of doing everything they possibly can to upgrade in some small way. But I'm like, no, I can because you also have to be like pragmatic and have a good sense of timing with when to make these kind of moves. And I just, I don't think this was, I do not think the Mavs are in the position right now to have given up what they gave up for these very marginal upgrades. Your thoughts on all that? I'm totally with you on, especially the PJ Washington deal where I just think, so all the reporting about Grant Williams has been, they just needed to get rid of him because everybody hated him. Basically. That's really a shame, like for both Grant Williams to have like just alienated himself to that extent over the course of a few months with this team, but also that the team found itself in a position where they had to pay a premium essentially to get rid of this dude who was one of their prized offseason acquisitions and who I will cop to really liking as an addition for them in the offseason. It seemed like it made all kinds of sense because he was a versatile defender and a guy who was ostensibly going to knock down a lot of catch-and-shoot threes for them. And he was at the start of the season, knocking down a ton of catch-and-shoot threes, and then he really cooled off. And I guess, you know, his behavior that seems to really great on teammates was maybe tolerable when he was shooting 45% from deep. But when he's back down to like 36 37%, that's no longer tolerable. So that seems to have been a big impetus for their move, is just like getting him out of their locker room. But like you mentioned, top two protected 2027 first to go from him to Washington, who I do think is an upgrade, but certainly not as much of one as like raw counting stats would suggest because he is a significantly worse defender than Grant Williams. They're both basically these like undersized fours who can sometimes be small ball fives. But with PJ, I just think like the thing with him is He's always been sold as like a switch big, but that's less about how good he is at switching than it is about how bad he is at playing other types of coverage, right? Like you're not going to play him in drop coverage because he doesn't protect the rim. Like, yeah, he can, or he will switch. That doesn't necessarily mean he's a particularly good switch defender. I don't think he moves that well in space. And I just don't think he really has a defensive position. And the things, like the areas in which Washington is an offensive upgrade over Grant Williams, like he can do a little bit more in terms of creating his own shot. He's a more dynamic role man. He can do a little bit more kind of posting mismatches. And if you're facing a switching defense, then maybe you want to have that element. But Washington hasn't been an especially good stretch for. No. What's like, what's he shooting from three for his career? Like around... I want to say 35%, something like if that. that. But I know it's also tailed off. Like his shooting has tailed off over the course of his career. I know when I looked yesterday, uh, it had gotten progressively worse almost every yeah. year. I mean, and he's going to be getting a higher quality of looks in Dallas without a doubt. So that will make a difference. But it it just feels like the things that he 
does better than Grant Williams are not things that he's really going to be asked to do or get to showcase all that much in Dallas anyway. 32. Especially like four percent this year. 32, 32.4%, 36% for his, his career. So not bad. Yeah. But like him as a role man, for example, which is something that I think he does quite well, especially for a guy who's only, you know, six, 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 seven. But if they're not going to have him playing the five really ever, which I don't think they should, especially now that they have, you know, given themselves basically 48 minutes of quality center play between Lively and Gafford. I just don't know that there's actually going to be that much opportunity for him to do that stuff. I think he's mostly going to be relegated to spot up duty. And in that role, I don't even necessarily think that you'd prefer him to Grant Williams. So I'm in agreement with you in that. I don't actually see that as being much of an upgrade and certainly not enough of an upgrade to justify the very, very light protection on that 2027 pick. Um, And I mean, the hope for them obviously is like Luca's still there and they're still a good enough team that, that winds up being not even a lottery pick and like that really light pick protection doesn't wind up mattering all that much, but that's just really risky for what I still see as a kind of marginal upgrade as much as they might've disliked Grant Williams on a personal level. And they were obviously like clearly done with him on a basketball level too. Like he has not been playing well to be perfectly clear. Yeah. Um, I, I like the Gafford fit a lot there. I think, you know, they've been relying on Dwight Powell for probably too long. And Lively has been fantastic for them. I think he'll continue to start, but, he, you know, he's still a rookie big. You know, I think if you have Lively playing like 26 minutes a game, then that feels about right to me. And then have Gafford backing him up. Yeah. Basically doing a lot of the same things in terms of his ability to rim run and, and finish above the rim and, you know, be be a deterrent at the rim at the other end of the floor. Like, and giving them a sense of continuity as they move from one center to the next and basically having a lob threat for Luca to play with for every minute that he's on the court. But to your point, it didn't, it didn't come cheap, right? Like they had to, they're, they're already out their 2029 pick unprotected, I believe for the Kyrie trade. Now this very lightly protected 2027 pick unprotected swap to San Antonio in 2030 and now this swap in 2028 going out the door. I mean, that is a crazy amount of downside risk yeah. for that run of picks from 2027 to 2030. Like if things go sideways, I mean, it's just obviously if Luca does ask out, then they'll recoup a lot of draft assets, but their own picks are in jeopardy of really coming back to bite them for that stretch at the end of the decade. And obviously they can't think too hard about that stuff when they're trying to build a winner around Luca right now and trying to convince him that this is the place that he can win. But there's a lot a, of downside risk. A lot of downside risk and all those years you mentioned are after Luca Doncic's contract expires, his current contract expires. So, Right. So it's not oh, even like oh. he would have to ask out, right? He could just walk. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, I get it. I get that you have to like basically go all in now to put the best possible team around Luca that you can. But I just think if you're going to go all in and put like have as much draft capital out the door as they do, you'd hope that the team around him that they would have put together with all those picks would be better than it is. Who's the third best player on this team? Probably Lively. And that's, again, kudos to Lively. And they had a good draft, but... If 
a team that we're saying has now gone pretty much all in and given up that kind of draft equity in the years after their superstar contract expires. And we're sitting here saying a 19, 20 year old is their third best player. That's a problem. Yeah. I mean, look, they made the team better. So I, you, I guess you give them a round of applause for that and see what they can do the rest of the season. Like they've been pretty good. Luca has been amazing. Like yeah. he's on a ridiculous heater right now. And Kyrie, when he's been available has been very, very good. But I don't know if this leads to them winning even a single series this year. I don't know if it leads to them winning a play-in game. Well, I think they have a decent shot to stay above the play-in fray. Like right now, they're a game and a half behind the Pelicans for the sixth seed. Yeah. And if they do wind up in the play-in, I would probably expect them to beat whoever they wind up playing. But again, like... Look at these teams. Like, that's no guarantee, right? The rest of the playing field is going to be like the Lakers, Warriors, and Kings, maybe. Like, it's not going to be a cakewalk no matter who they play. And then, yeah, you wouldn't expect them to get out of the first round after that. So, yeah. I, you know, PJ Washington's under contract for what, like three more years after this? I think two more. And Gafford, I think, has another year left on his deal after this. And Lively is going to get better. Ideally, Jaden Hardy and Josh Green are going to get better and show you something. Like, it's not, I'm not saying this is a dead end and like there isn't any upward mobility here, but it doesn't feel like there's a ton. And I'm not even saying they shouldn't have done it. Like, I guess they kind of had to, but I just would have hoped that if they were going to put what they put on the table, that they would have gotten something that inspired me a little bit more than than who they got. Yeah, I agree. But I don't know. It's like, what what could they have got? What else was out there? Like, would you have felt much better about this if they made the exact same deal, but it was Kuzma coming back instead of PJ Washington? Maybe I would have felt a little better, but not a lot better. I think for me, it's like they didn't have to. If this was the best they could do with those assets, then they were better off just sitting on them. Yeah, but would like would that have been acceptable to to Luca? You know, that's that's what you are always weighing these decisions against. Yeah. Luca doesn't give a shit about what happens to their pick in like 2027, 20, 29. Like he's thinking I want to win right now. Yeah. And you know, obviously they're like you mentioned all the moves that got them to this place, so they could have avoided being in this situation, but they made the moves they made. They're in the position they're in and I guess these were the deals they got boxed into making. It just doesn't doesn't make me feel great about their present, and it makes me feel very scared about their future. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Sixers? Kind of an interesting day for them? I mean, they, they got... Ultimately, if you look at the players that came in and the players that went out, they acquired the best player 
in that mix, right? In Buddy Healed. Yeah. But I don't know where it all leaves them when you're talking about I mean, first of all, the Embiid variable is the only one that matters right now. And I don't think they make that healed trade if they're not confident that he's coming back. I, I don't see them doing the healed trade as like a hedge, being like, well, maybe Joel won't come back, but in that case, we'll get Buddy healed and we'll remain competent for the rest of the year. Like they make that trade feeling fairly certain that Embiid's coming back, right? Unless they really wanted Buddy Heald's bird rights. <laughs> but they, they're primed to have like... I know, that's what... I- almost two max slots in free agency. So like if they wanted Buddy Heald that badly, they could have just waited till the offseason to try and sign him. I, anyway, so they get Heald, who I think for a healthy Sixers team makes a lot of sense, will really help. I mean, a deadly, deadly movement shooter, right? And we've seen how effective Embiid can be running the dribble handoff game with shooters of that ilk. Like once upon a time, it was J.J. Redick. This year, he's run that dribble handoff game to great effect with Maxi, And obviously, Maxi is much more than just a movement shooter. Uh, makes those two-man actions extremely dynamic with the way that he can be a downhill threat as well. But I think the two-man game with Embiid and Heald could be really, really good. And to have him spotting up around, you know, Maxi Embiid pick and rolls, Embiid post-ups. I think their offense is going to be, I mean, it's been deadly all year, but even deadlier with Heald out there. So I like them getting him. But I giving up Beverly for campaign and a second round pick, um, I know part of this was sort of getting themselves to the point that now they're able to actually assign a buyout guy who made more than the MLE this season. So yeah. I think the guy they're clearly targeting is Lowry. Yeah. And if they get Lowry on the buyout market, that washes this away to me. Yeah. I think they're in great shape. If they don't, I worry a little bit actually about them losing Beverly and his point of attack defense, but also his ball handling and his passing. Like they're, I think what we talked about them needing going into this deadline was another ball handler, another creator. And Heald is a really good shooter, but I don't think you'd necessarily describe him as that archetype of player, like a guy who's going to be relied upon to create for you yeah. when, say, Tyrese Maxey's on the bench. And uh, it feels like Lowry is really the only way that they're going to be able to do that. Yeah, and I would imagine that's what's going to end up happening here. Like all the reporting seems to indicate that that's how this is going to end with them getting Lowry. Um, yeah, I like the heel deal. I thought it obviously makes them better right now. It gives Tyrese Maxey some extra space to work with while Joel Embiid is out and obviously just gives them a further boost once fully healthy. With respect to the bird rise thing, I mean, I guess technically it could help them in the event that if they spend their cap space, if they use their cap space and still want to re-sign Heald, mm. they could. Not saying that's what's going to happen, but I guess... There's some advantage to getting him in there if it if he is actually a guy they were targeting the offseason. I'm not sure he is. No, no, no. That's that's yeah. a really good point. Um, but the other part of their day, and I think the part that made us both scratch our heads, was then they dumped Jaden Springer for a second rounder. And it's like, listen, I, I know that sometimes we can get caught up in like overvaluing a young guy just because they're young or because they kind of showed us a flash or something. But like, I don't know, man. I, I like Jaden Springer. He's, a, he's an interesting young player who's defense is pretty damn amazing and to just dump them for a second rounder on boston too like i don't know i got a low key for boston decent day um i don't know the last time i was this down on the sixers just kind of like giving up on a young guy was isaiah joe and we know how that 
Yeah. Sorry, Sixers fans. That's uh, I, I don't think this one's going to bite them quite as hard as that one did, just because I, what we've seen from Springer this to this point is a very limited offensive skill set, but he's had some flashes of elite point-of-attack defense. And it was a $4 million salary hit for next season yeah. that they're getting themselves out of. And I know they're looking to play the cap space game, but they would have been able to open up max space anyway. So I just don't know that saving that extra $4 million makes enough of a difference to like give up on somebody who has looked promising, at least at one end of the floor. And, you know, Boston for them, it's like he fits their defensive identity really well. And uh, they'll, they'll get a look at him and see, I guess, if he can round out his skill set at the other end. I think that's, that's a good flyer for them to take. And, you know, they low key, if we want to segue to the Celtics, they also got Xavier Tillman, who, I don't know, that was another move that I think people were swooning over that I was more like, yeah, I like this. It's a nice bit of insurance. But, I mean, Tillman has been awful offensively this year. And I, I think part of that you could chalk up to the, just like the Grizzlies don't have creators around him and he's a play finisher. He's not somebody you know who's going to create for himself. So if the guy's creating for him go from elite to very poor then obviously he's going to suffer for it but even at the best of times he just gets completely ignored on offense he's not a shooter he's not a great finisher and he is like a pretty ground bound big so even if he's like camping out in the dunker spot you pretty much can help off of him liberally and know that even if he catches the ball it's kind of going to take him a while to load up and you're going to have a chance to recover and still prevent him from scoring. It's not like he's getting up for lobs or bouncing off the ground and finishing before you can recover. Like he's just a guy that is very easy to help off of and has pretty consistently crippled his team's offense when he's been on the floor. Um, as much as I, he's like a good passer, right? Like a guy who can be a connector in the middle of the floor, but for a Celtics team that I don't think really needed any help defensively but has obviously had these offensive issues in the playoffs i don't know that he actually moves the needle for them that much like they're talking about a third big and like i don't know that tillman is actually any better in that role than like nemias keita or like even luke cornett at points like those guys are both way way better finishers than him at the very least even though he's the much more versatile defender yeah, I'll be honest. I haven't given much thought to Tillman and the Celtics. I did like them, you know, getting Springer in there as a a young guy with upside as a veteran team that doesn't have much wiggle room to do other stuff. I did want to ask you though about Gordon Hayward to the Thunder because I reacted to that news yesterday. We were sitting beside each other. Uh, I reacted to that news yesterday with more of a like, this doesn't matter. Like Gordon Hayward's not held. He's not going to play much. He's not. But you seemed. I mean, I don't think you were like over the moon about it, but you definitely seemed like you thought it was more consequential, more consequential than I was giving it credit for. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on why you're higher on that deal than I was, or you just think it's a bigger deal maybe than me and some other people have thought it to be. Well, I mean, it's like the biggest caveat, obviously, of any trade that got made today, which is just like, is Hayward going to get healthy is he going to stay healthy he's been on the shelf for six weeks with the calf strain and he's missed an average of 32 games a season ever since he broke his leg five minutes into the 2017-18 season so 
That's always the question with him. When he's played, he's still very solid. Like he's not a star, but he is kind of a Swiss army knife. Like he just does a lot of different things at like an average or above average level. And I think for the Thunder specifically, like he's not going to start, but let's think about their closing lineups, right? More and more often recently, as we see these opposing teams cross-match their center onto Josh Giddy, and all the ways that that can jam up the Thunder's offense in crunch time, they're starting to take him off the floor. And I think Hayward could be a pretty perfect piece to slot into those closing lineups because he's low maintenance. He doesn't need the ball in his hands, but put the ball in his hands, especially at like on the second side, you can have him attack a tilted defense. You can have him run secondary pick and roll. He can shoot. And I think, you know, you, he's also a guy who can still, even at his advancing age and with the injuries in his rear view, competently defend threes and fours. And yeah, you, you think about the, the four other guys that they're going to have in that closing lineup in Shea, Chet, Dort, and J-Dub. There's any number of fifth guys, I guess, that you could plug into that, right? It could be Isaiah Joe. It could be Casey Wallace. But I think Hayward is as good a bet as anyone to be the fifth guy in those closing groups. And I think that could wind up making a lot of sense. So this is like, I don't know, to me, this feels like the highest variance trade. Because on the low end, it's like, he just doesn't play. He can't get healthy, can't stay healthy. Or like, he because of the injuries, he's just ineffective. But on the high end, it's like, oh, he is healthy and he does a lot of things that this team actually really needs. Yeah, I think that's all fair. And look, I mean, some of the stuff I said earlier about the Mavs when I was talking about, like, I think they're far enough away where a marginal upgrade or marginal upgrades aren't enough. The Thunder are obviously at a different level where, like, even a marginal upgrade, when you're playing at that level of, like, true contention, can make a big difference at a point in the year when the margins between winning and losing are very thin. And in that respect, I do think a healthy Gordon Hayward, if that's possible over an extended stretch of time and going into the playoffs, could make that difference for a team that is that good and doesn't need the biggest boost. So I'm with you there. Um, Okay, so we mentioned the Pistons off the top, and obviously they were involved in that Knicks deal that we both liked, but... How did you feel about it from the Pistons end? And like, especially taking that together with the move from the previous day to get Fontecchio from the Jazz. Uh, and then obviously Killian Hayes gets waived in all of this. They they took on a bunch of other guys in, in deals. Like Daniel House was there for a minute and they waived him. I think Gallinari got waived. What's going on with the Pistons? How did you feel about their deadline day? What's the outlook for the suddenly... What, they're on a winning streak, Cash. <laughs> and in the Too most straight. unlikely of fashions. Um, look, I think they had a solid enough deadline day, deadline week, whatever you want to call it. I think they added some competence and upside. Fontecchio is, you know, he's a sophomore, but he's a vet. The guy's been a pro for like a decade. Good shooter, smart player, two-way player. I think that's a guy that, you know, could help them going forward. And he's a restricted free agent. Because even though he's 28, he's only in his second year in the NBA. So I think he could help them going forward. I think it was good to target him. Grimes, obviously, there's upside there and could fit in better with where the Pistons are than where the Knicks were. So I, 
I thought their moves get some future-minded um, assets and also target maybe a couple guys that between upside and the way they play could actually fit and help the young guys. Even in Fontecchio's case, his shooting and the way he plays, I think could actually help the young guys who need more space and competence around them to operate. So overall, I think I'm fine with what they did. I think they had a solid enough couple days. Like, you know, you can't trade everyone, but the Pistons came damn near close to trading everyone that's not in their plans. So couldn't really have asked for much more from them. Yeah, and like I, I think Grimes has a chance to be a real valuable contributor there for a few years. I I like his defense for them, and that's something that they're going to need. And not only that, but like somebody who can get threes up at volume and shoot them pretty well on top of his ability to you know attack closeouts, get into the teeth of the defense. So I'm fine with how that shook out, even though, yeah, obviously if they traded Bogdanovich earlier, they could have gotten something more. And then, you know, the Fontecchio thing, uh, I, I agree. Like, I, th- I just think he's a guy who makes life easier pretty much for everybody that he plays with. Like, the Jazz had this massive turnaround when they inserted him into the starting lineup. I'm not saying that's the whole reason that they turned things around, but he's just one of these, you know, to compare him to, like, Hayward and, and like, being this low-maintenance guy that doesn't take anything off of the table but is just additive, to your point, yeah, that can be very, very important for a rebuilding team that is trying to develop a lot of different guys at once has a lot of different mouths to feed. And so if you're bringing in a vet, I think you do want him to look a lot like Simone Fontecchio, you know, a guy who can shoot off a movement, who can make connective passes, who's unselfish and who can defend pretty well in a team context. So yeah, I don't, I don't hate it for them. I think the Killian Hayes thing is like the fact that they just waved him makes it that much more frustrating that he has, over the last couple of years, taken so much playing time away from other guys who should have been higher developmental priorities. But at least they ripped the Band-Aid off. And, you know, I think I've been, relatively speaking, something of a Pistons optimist this year, like compared to consensus, where I'm like, this obviously looks really bad right now, but I actually kind of like the young talent they have in place and could see this turning around faster than people think. That's obviously contingent on Cade being the player that people thought he was capable of becoming. But, I mean, Duran's looking really good. Jaden Ivey. I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention to what Jaden Ivey's been doing lately, but he's really starting to figure some things out, figuring out how to play at different speeds, shooting the ball really well from deep recently, and obviously getting more opportunity. And what was really encouraging, especially like last night, um, I I didn't actually see the Kings game, so I don't know whether they closed with this same lineup. But what I've been begging them to do is like, you have your four clear priorities developmentally, which is Cade, Ivy, Asar Thompson, and Jalen Duran. Play those four guys together as much as you can. And they closed that game against Portland with those four guys on the floor together. And they pulled out the win in overtime. And it was great to see. You just need to get a bigger sample of how those guys all fit. And then you have complimentary pieces like Grimes, like Fontecchio, who you can slot into those lineups. Marcus are, Sasser. And Marcus Sasser. Yeah, good point. Yeah, no, I I don't think you can really argue with what the Pistons 
did at the deadline. Um, there, is, I want to point out one thing just because I think it's hilarious and I think you and our audience will get a kick out of it. So I know we've been talking about the teams that have done something. I know there's a bunch of teams we can talk about that didn't do any. Like I wrote about the Lakers as part of our post-deadline wrap-up. Now there's no saving them this year. You know, the moves that saved them last year weren't available this year. They're a very mid-team headed towards a very mid, probably, uh, you know, postseason result in some fashion. The Raptors, I know, confounded you. And maybe we can even talk about those two teams or uh, over the course of the next few episodes. But the one I really wanted to point out, the Chicago Bulls doing nothing, right? Like, it's going to look even worse if, say, DeMar DeRozan walks for nothing now. But <laughs> when do you think the last time the Bulls traded a player is? <laughs> I think I saw this somewhere. I think it was it the DeRozan trade? August 2021. Yeah. So what? Yeah. What was the trade? I actually don't know what the trade was, but that's that's when it was. That's what Casey Johnson, NBC Chicago, uh, well-known Bulls reporter, tweeted that the Bulls have not traded a player since August 2021. Arturis Karnasovas clearly just he doesn't trade his guys. He loves his guys, and has this franchise absolutely committed to nothingness. And I, you know, I would always say, as I do with most executives, okay, like, yeah, you can kill them for their moves. But at the same time, you know, you don't know what the mandate is from ownership. If, hey, if Jerry Reinsdorf is fine being a mid-team and is just trying to sell one home play-in game or maybe a couple home playoff games, Karnasovas can't really do anything about it, except the craziest shit I saw on deadline day. I'm, you know, winding down after a long deadline day, Wolf and I doing live analysis, then doing the post-deadline feature, watching games at night. I'm winding down, and I see a tweet flash across my timeline from earlier in the day, also from Casey Johnson, <laughs> and it is that. Karnasovas yesterday confirmed that ownership would sign off on a rebuild if he wanted to choose that route, but he has made it clear he doesn't want to and wants to stay competitive, and therefore, all my defense of this buffoon of an executive from a basketball construct team constructing standpoint has flown out the window. Karnasovas is my new Ernie Grunfeld. <laughs> what is this guy doing with an NBA job? Absolute clown show in Chicago. Clown yeah. show. I don't think you can blame them for the Levine thing. Like there obviously just wasn't a market for him even before it was announced that he was having season ending surgery. So there was no hope of trading him. But there are reports of what was offered for Alex Caruso, like in the range of multiple first round picks or like equivalent to that in terms of like a pick and a prospect kind of thing. And if that's true, like, man, I just, I don't know. I mean, their plan obviously has to be to like, they're not gonna be able to extend him, right? Because he's on a ridiculously team-friendly contract. It's not going to make sense for him to extend. So they're taking this to free agency, presumably after next season, and they got to hope that they can re-sign him. Otherwise, they're going to have a ton of egg on their face for not moving him at the peak of his value. Even Andre Drummond, like to not get multiple second rounders for him, which surely they could have done, they're baffling. But uh they're trudging toward the play-in, and at least we get to watch Kobe White play games yeah. of some consequence down the stretch. So that'll be fun. Um, one more thing I wanted to add, because we, we didn't mention this in the course of talking about the Thunder. We did mention it when we were talking about the Mavs, but in that Mavs deal to get Gafford, 
the Thunder, this is the, the shit they do that's just like so savvy. They get that 2028 swap from the Mavs in exchange for a pick in this coming draft that's like the least favorable of, or sorry, the the second least favorable because they have all kinds of swaps going on in this draft, but it's going to be the second least favorable of them, Clippers, Jazz, and Rockets. Because the least favorable of those picks is the one that the Raptors traded to Utah yeah. in the Kelly Olynyk oche Agbaji deal. So the Thunder trade the second least favorable of those picks, which is it's just going to be theirs or the Clippers, basically. 27th or worse. A low upside pick in a maligned draft. But that's that's what the Wizards wanted. And I think that makes sense, right? Like for a team in the Thunder's position where they're like, in 2028, we're going to be one of the best teams in the league. And the Mavs could be really bad. So that's an upside swing that they can afford to take where they don't need the 27th pick in this coming draft. Like they're set in terms of their young core right now. But that could be a really valuable chip, that swap in 2028. Whereas for the Wizards, you know, that swap is maybe not as valuable to them because they don't necessarily project to be as good as the Thunder do in 2028 and they just need to start like filling their prospect reservoir right now so to them they wanted the 2024 pick the Mavs needed to get that pick in order to send it in that deal and the Thunder just wind up being able to like insert themselves and get what could prove to be a really valuable draft asset yep classic Thunder in their approach to stockpiling assets, classic Mavs in their approach to not knowing what the hell they're doing, classic Bulls in that under the uh, watchful eye of our tourist Karnasovas, their logo should have an O between the two L's in their name from now on. Just classic all around. Um, okay, so Cash, because we're already in an hour here and we've run out of time to talk about the teams that didn't make moves, you already mentioned the Bulls. I, I think... It kind of is what it is. Like we, you wrote about this with the Lakers. Yeah, they obviously needed help, but I just don't think there were any obvious moves for them to actually make. They would have just instantly made them contenders. And I kind of agree with the decision to keep the powder dry. As much as it's like, man, you have LeBron and AD. They're playing at a really high level. They're healthy this season. You got to do whatever you can to upgrade the team. I just, I don't know if there was a move out there that really would have moved the needle for them. Like, from all the reporting that's been done, the Hawks weren't moving DeJounte Murray unless Austin Reeves was on the table. And I don't know that I would have done that as the Lakers. Like, yes, DeJounte Murray is better, but given the disparity in their contracts, I don't know, man. I think I would rather have kept Reeves and see what they can do in the summer. And like, same thing with the Warriors. Like, the the Wizards is a little baffling to me that they, they kept Tyus Jones. Um, same. I just I, I don't understand how he didn't wind up moving. Apart from that, uh, there like other teams that made moves. There's the Raptors. Um, did you want to talk about them at all? The very interesting trade that they made with Utah, uh, and then salary dumping Dennis Schroeder to potentially give themselves a shot at close to max cap space in the summer. I think I mean we don't have the time to do it today, but I think we can talk about the confounding Raptors in the coming episodes. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, I think that trade on the surface looked very strange because for the second straight year, the Raptors, who were positioned clearly as sellers, wound up trading one of only two first-rounders to actually change hands 
on deadline day, or sorry, I guess it was three in this case because the Mavs traded two of them. But I, I think it makes sense given, again, that's going to be like the 28th pick in this coming draft. And Agbaji was a lottery pick a couple years ago and I think made sense as a guy for them to chase. And also Olinick could be a really good fit there. Yep. So I don't think that one was like as egregious as or nearly as egregious as the Pirtle trade that they made last year. No. And as I was saying to you yesterday, I mean, if you gave me the, a choice between the 29th uh, ish pick in this year's draft with Lewis and Porter or Olenek on an expiring end get, taking a flyer on Agbaji, I take option B every time. So I think it was a perfectly defensible move. Yeah. But I do think not finding a taker for Bruce Brown is yeah. kind of an L. Yep, uh, and I we'll agree. see how that situation plays out. But they're now in a situation where, like, if they want to open up all that cap space in the summer, then they kind of probably just need to, like, decline Bruce Brown's $23 million option. Whereas, like, I think they had an opportunity to maybe get a draft pick and an expiring contract back. Like, the, the Knicks deal that was reportedly out there for Fournier and a first, where they can still clear the cap space, but they also get something back for him. Whereas now I think they've kind of closed the door on maybe getting both of those things out of the Bruce Brown situation, but they still have some optionality there. And I didn't hate their deadline on the whole. I was just a little bit vexed by it. Um, I think that's but fair. it was interesting. Uh, and then just like smaller scale moves, but the Wolves getting Monty Morris, I think could work out well. And the Suns getting Royce O'Neal as well. But we are out of time here. You've got your heart out, Cash. So... I'm going to let you go. Royce O'Neal, the Suns traded some of that fake depth we talk about for real depth in Royce O'Neal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically exchanging quantity for quality and getting a wing who I think they can write in pen into their playoff rotation. Whereas all those other guys who have at times looked like competent pieces of their rotation were more question marks. But we'll have time to talk about all that stuff in the future. For now, I'm going to let Cash get out of here and I'm going to let our listeners get out of here and probably go listen to a billion other trade deadline wrap-up pods but i hope you enjoyed ours we'll be back next week and looking ahead to the stretch run as we approach the all-star break no fan shout out this week because again we're pressed for time but we'll get back to those next week for now we're getting out of here for joseph Cacharo. i'm joe wolf on pound the rock 